My business used to be weighed down by the complexities of in-person payments. Then, Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe came along and changed everything. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, I streamlined my payment process effortlessly. Now I can accept in-person, contactless payments right from my iPhone. No extra hardware required. What's truly remarkable is how I can cater to all of my customers' payment preferences. Whether they're using cards, Apple Pay, or other digital wallets, Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe ensure a smooth checkout experience every time. And it's not just me. Stripe helps businesses of all sizes, from local markets to global retailers, scale quickly and stay agile. To learn how Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe can help grow your revenue and reach, visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone. All of a sudden, your money and that bill you've got to pay, you might actually ask the consultant to do a little bit cheaper and you might push a little bit harder for certain things to happen quicker. Um, so that was an interesting insight for me to understand how I would treat my own money versus how I thought I was treating the business's money that I worked for. This is Property Investory where we talk to successful property investors to find out more about their stories, mindset and strategies. I'm Tyrone Shum and in this episode, we're speaking with General Manager of Clear State, Steve Barlow. He shares how he's always envisioned working in property and reveals the perks of working in a land subdivision business and how this aids him in his property journey and much, much more. Operating primarily in Sydney, the business that Barlow manages specializes in developing fragmented parcels. You might be wondering what that is. I'll leave that for him to explain. It's a consequence of the way Sydney's been developed over time, particularly subdivisions that occurred in the 50s and 60s. And it basically means there's a lot of three to five acre parcels that exist. They are in the growth centre, but they're not big enough for a big master plan community. They're sort of 50 lots in size at bite-sized chunks. So we specialise in buying those um, five-acre parcels from the existing owner and developing those into communities. What's good about that from an investment perspective is that they're small enough such that um, it doesn't take a significant amount of capital to buy them. And if you can aggregate uh, the adjoining parcels, then you can turn it into a particularly big project. Yeah, big development site, fantastic. All right, yeah, that's really fascinating just to be able to hear that and uh, there's plenty of opportunity then because we have a lot of land and I guess it's just a matter of being able to release that supply to, to the market, isn't it? Well, one of the, the other good things about fragmented subdivision is the bigger parcels typically are further away from the infrastructure. So a good example of that is some projects we've got in Rouse Hill where the government invested heavily in the new metro line that runs will ultimately run through into the city. Great piece of infrastructure. Uh, and we've been able to get projects within walking distance of that metro station where someone, a customer can come in and buy a freestanding house but be within walking distance of this great piece of infrastructure. Typically, the bigger projects don't get that benefit. They're further away. 
So we like the fact that we can get in and deliver really efficient projects from an, an investment perspective, but give great amenity uh, and outcome to the customers who ultimately buy them. I mean, I, I just recall because I drove past and just correct me if I'm wrong, Is you guys have a parcel of land down at Quakers Hill, is that right? One of our first projects was in Quakers Hill on Burdekin Road. Yeah, it, it used to be an egg farm or something like that. Correct. So we, we typically we will buy the five acre parcels off a farmer of some sort, whether it be an egg farmer or a market gardener or something like that. And they've owned that land for business purposes. Um, it's happened to be rezoned. It's it's a good size and parcel for us to buy and we end up transacting with, with that particular owner. Although Barlow's role within the business is very diverse and he's often dealing with many different parts of the business's operations, He's primarily focused on acquisitions at this current time. In any development business, you need a pipeline to be able to bring stock to market and ultimately deliver the projects. So we're heavily focused on trying to find new projects to buy. That's probably taking up 70% of my time. Um, I've got a team that uh, works with me that are also heavily focused on acquisitions. Outside of that, um, we've got a heavy customer focus and making sure we deliver on time for our customers and do what we say we're going to do. Obviously, got a team that we're managing. His day typically consists of a lot of vendor engagement as this is the main focus in the acquisition process. This is because customers value the investment in infrastructure that is local to the area they're thinking of living in or buying into. We try to buy sites that are well advanced from a planning perspective. So once we've narrowed down those areas, then it becomes about which parcels do we like specifically. So we like to look for um, parcels that have good road layouts. We like to look for parcels that are relatively flat, um, are serviced from a utility perspective. So we then apply another set of filters, if you like, to narrow down the specific sites we'd like to look at. And then it becomes about engagement with those vendors, preparing a feasibility in which to put an an offer forward and then um, spending what tends to be a fair amount of time with those vendors, getting them to a point where they understand our offer because sometimes some of the concepts we talk are a little bit foreign uh, and ultimately agreeing a price and term. So yeah, we spend we spend a lot of time in the pre-feasibility phase identifying where we'd like to buy. We then do detailed feasibilities and detailed numbers to work out what we think we can pay and then it becomes about vendor engagement. Yeah, great. Well, I'm assuming some of the terms that vendors might not be familiar with be like joint venturing options. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, it's it's pretty common when we look to buy under an option agreement purely to defer our stamp duty obligation that not only vendors but their legal advisors think that we're taking an option that we can walk away from, which is not the case. We're committed to the option um, and they have the ability to enforce um, that commitment, but they don't necessarily understand it. So we Sometimes it's just a lot about educating them on those concepts and how we're protecting their interest in the transaction. I'm also just curious as well with regards to say the vendors, are these usually vendors who don't know that they might be an opportunity to sell or are they actually already advertising on the market? A bit of both. We we like to try and find off-market opportunities because I mean, I suppose there's some costs during the transaction that you can naturally avoid, agents primarily. Um, but typically where we operate, everyone's aware of what a, a, a range of value for their parcel is. They talk to their neighbours who might have sold or someone down the road. So they're all pretty educated on, on what their land is worth. They've, they've been educated through the rezoning process. So typically the rezoning process takes anywhere from two to five years and they've been informed during that process. And then a lot of them, particularly in um, high demand locations, will see a lot of 
uh, agent and developer activity, i.e. people trying to buy their land. So they become educated through just talking to people interested in acquiring their land. Growing up in the Blue Mountains on the outskirts of Sydney, Barlow stayed living in his area all throughout university. He would then make the move to London. I suppose got to the end of that period in my life and I decided that I best get a job. I was always I was always very fortunate in that I knew I wanted to do property in some way, shape or form. Um, it wasn't until during university that I decided property development was where I wanted to head specifically. He attended Western Sydney University at the Quakers Hill campus where he studied property economics. Quakers Hill campus, which um, I suppose gave me uh, the ability to drive through parts of Western Sydney, which is where I'm developing now, which is quite interesting. Okay, so you pretty much drove from the Blue Mountains out to university during those days as well. How, how long would that trip have taken actually? Uh, half an hour. Yeah, okay. So, it's not that far now I think about it. Yeah. No, I was at my, where I grew up was at the very bottom end of the Blue Mountains. So, um, Penrith almost you could call within a stone's throw of Penrith. During the 18 months that he lived in London, it wasn't all play and no work. Barlow dabbled in real estate. I did some um, leasing of, of flats, which was very interesting. Getting to know London and driving around London was a, a great experience. Um, but uh, yeah, something I, I certainly look back on fondly. Definitely. And was that straight after uni? Since you finished, you went straight over to London? Basically, yeah. Within a couple of months, I was on a plane. First time overseas, which was uh, daunting and exciting all at the same time. And... Uh, didn't do as much, I suppose, European travel as I'd planned, um, but London's a pretty interesting and diverse place and you could get lost there for a long time. So that, that's basically what I did and I, um, through the job I was doing, I was working weekends as well, so it probably narrowed down the time I had, but nonetheless, great experience. So was that your intention when you went over to London to actually work a bit? Yeah. Okay, so you actually got a job over there and then as soon as you came back, then it's like, perfect, you got into Mervac. So... What were you doing at Mervac? So I was in their um, development business, their greenfield subdivision business located out in Parramatta. Um, and I was fortunate that I had a boss. I sort of had two bosses, uh, one of which just threw me in the deep end, which was a bit daunting because whilst you learn a lot at university, not all of it's practical. So he threw me in the deep end, which was great. It sort of made me learn very, very quickly. And then I had another boss who was sort of a lot more... Um, it had a coaching approach. So if I ever got stuck, I, I sort of had the best of both worlds. So I was very fortunate that I, I've landed that job with those two particular individuals and that gave me a really good grounding into what property development really was about. Wow. Is that common to actually have two bosses to report to in, in corporate? If you like, if you think about it in an org structure sense, one was a, a formal line and one was a, a, a dotted line, almost self guy just he was he sort of self-imposed himself uh, on me which which was fine like he he's one of the best operators I've had the benefit of working with and I think his approach to sink or swim benefited me in the long run so whilst it was um, a really daunting experience at the time I look back with fond memories. After working at Mervac for two years Barlow's formal reporting line superior got an offer to work at Stockland and so, he took Barlow with him. I ended up going to the dark side, if you like, um, which was a completely different business. I went from Mervac Homes in Parramatta. It was almost, it was a part of a corporate organisation, but it was almost, that particular division was almost run like a small business. 
which was great for me at the time. It was a good starting point into the big um, office in the city, in the head, the head office of Stockland, a completely different culture and mindset. So that was um, that took a bit of getting used to, almost 10 years. So. Coming up after the break, we hear about Barlow's role at Stockland and the projects that he was involved in. So I had three or four projects up there of, of differing um, sizes and at differing points in their life cycle. We learn about his work surrounding subdivisions and how the skills he gained in this sector of the business would aid him in the future. So I suppose I've been fortunate to see all aspects of property development from the very front end acquisition and statutory planning processes all the way through to the end product and customers moving into their homes. Barlow shares how the industry has changed over the last 15 years. So that was my first, I suppose, experience where um, the product itself changed significantly and now 300 square metres is, is almost the most common product in Western Sydney. And that's up next. I'm Tyrone Shum and you're listening to Property Investory. Hey, property investor, is your cash or equity currently earning you 1% to 2% per annum just sitting in the bank? What have I said to you that you can do better and you can get a rate of 15 to 25% per annum? To find out more, register your interest to become a money partner at propertyinvestory.com. Right now, there are great opportunities in the property market and I'm looking for money partners who want to invest and receive 15 to 25% per annum on their money for a short six-month period. So, register interest by visiting propertyinvestory.com. Starting as a development manager, Barlow managed their projects in the Hunter Valley before being promoted. He shares the type of development he was involved in. So, I had three or four projects up there of of differing um, sizes and at differing points in their life cycle. Uh, and then ultimately, I worked my way up to a regional manager role where I basically looked after their business in New South Wales from a greenfield land subdivision perspective. Barlow deals with a lot of greenfield projects, which are freestanding house land subdivisions on the outskirts of any city, but in this case, Western Sydney. So that's basically um, freestanding house land subdivision on the outskirts of any, any city, but in my case, um, Western Sydney. So it's where you can go and you can buy a piece of land and you can find a builder and build your house. They're they're all freestanding houses like you would see as you would imagine suburbia, I suppose. Um, So that's what we would term greenfield as opposed to brownfield, which was more uh, centrally located uh, within the CBD sort of ring and is typically built form whereby you, um, you buy an apartment or you buy a dwelling that's already constructed. Barlow has been fortunate in his career as he's been able to work his way up in the business. This was particularly the case at Stockland where he started in subdivisions. As a developer, you put the roads and the services like sewer and water, etc. in. So I spent a lot of time understanding how the physical construction process worked. And then from there, I've done everything from the planning side of things. So working out what your DA is going to look like, whether you comply with the planning controls and the like, um, to rezonings which um, is basically taking uh, a concept plan and turning it into um, a precinct that can be um, developed um, and, then in, and then into acquisitions. So I suppose I've been fortunate to see 
all aspects of property development from the very front end acquisition and statutory planning processes all the way through to the end product and customers moving into their homes. I've been very fortunate to see the whole process. Wow. And now I can see why you stayed there for 10 years because you you did quite a broad range of things all the way through the whole process, which obviously developed that skill. And that's one of the good things about property. I think it's, I mean, it's very tangible um, in that the end result for my customer or the customer is that they're living in their dream home, which is pretty exciting to be part of. Um, But it's also very diverse in the sense that you do, we do things on site. So there's a tangible aspect to that or element to that where you've got construction activity, you deal with feasibilities and numbers, you deal with planning and engagement with local councils and, and advocacy with local councils. So it's, you sort of need to be, not a, a master at any one particular thing, but you need to be have an understanding and grounding in each particular component. And that's that's one of the things that is really attractive about property, in my opinion. Yeah, I that's what I love about development. There's just so much that you can actually be part of that process. And it's great to be able to see from that from the planning stage all the way through to where your customer actually moves into the house because there's so many cogs in the wheel. And at the end of the day, if you don't get the part of the beginning right because that's obviously go go through the council and planning and so forth then you're kind of pretty much stuck you know and that's why it's so important to make it you know right especially to develop land that's going to be sustainable but also to fit the needs of our customers because i'm pretty sure over the time you've you've seen the developments change the block sizes have gone smaller and smaller i mean when i first started which was 15 years or so ago 450 or 500 square meter lots was probably the norm um I remember uh, I had a project that I looked after in Glenmore Park in Penrith and we we had a, an idea that we could deliver 300 square metre lots, which at the time was just unheard of and everyone was, particularly the sales team, were very against it. We, we don't think we can sell this, um, don't bother putting it on the market. They were very, very against the whole arrangement of 300 square metre lots. Anyway, in the end, we were able to get them because of their reduction in size to a price point that was very, very competitive and therefore more appealing to more customers. And we put them on the market on this particular weekend. I think we put 10 on the market. They all sold on Saturday. And the sales team in the following um, sales meeting on Monday were screaming for more. So that was my first, I suppose, experience where um, the product itself changed significantly. And now 300 square metres is is almost the most common product in Western Sydney. Um, we're doing lots down to sort of 250 square metres, which which is affordability driven in the main. Um, so it's a good thing that we're able to deliver, I suppose, a price point where more people can get into home ownership. Yeah, I think people don't realise um, the, the land size at the end of the day until they actually see it and actually think about it because when you think about it, down to 250 square meters, it's literally the house and it's just a very tiny bit of backyard space and, and, and at the end of the day, if it's affordable, you know, who cares, you know, at the end of the day, as long as we can actually get our own home ownership as you just mentioned as well too, which is quite important for a lot of us as well. I think the, the builders have done a great job too in that small lot product. They've Some of the designs they're coming out with now are so um, livable and and use the space so efficiently that um, the value for money you get is really really high. So whilst they're affordable, that the quality of living, if you like, is is exceptional. Barlow was content at Stockland, managing some great projects that had been in the works for a long time. He was then introduced to his current boss, Dean Williamson, owner of Clearstate, through a mutual friend. He was keen for me to come and work for him. Um, 
after four months of me saying no a few times, going back and forth, me saying no a few more times, he's a pretty convincing guy. In the end, I decided that uh, coming across to work in a in a smaller private business would be good for my personal development. And it's probably always something that I had in the back of my mind that I would have I would like to do one day. Probably came into my world sooner than I had anticipated, but nonetheless, the opportunity presented itself. Um, and yeah, that was that was it. We we agreed that I'd come and work for him, and I've been here for almost four years. ClearState aims to buy projects where they can deliver an affordable product. With this as their goal, their target market is predominantly first and second home buyers who are typically budget conscious. So we'll typically try and buy, like I said, projects that are well located in terms of proximity to amenity um, because that's what customers value, which which uh, obviously makes our product easier to sell. So that's probably the first thing. And then secondly, we're able to buy projects where we can deliver affordable product, which naturally attracts the first home buyer and the second home buyer. Um, so they're, they're budget conscious typically, um, they're wanting value for money and the projects we can buy can offer both of those things. Working in the property development space for over a decade, it's not unusual that Barlow would start his own property journey. This kickstarted when he purchased his first property off of Sockland. So I was working on a project in the Hunter Valley in Maitland and we were, I saw that we were delivering product where um, I suppose mum and dad investors were coming along after us and subdividing our lots into smaller lots. So I thought, well, I've got the skills to do that. So I went and did that and I ended up um, cutting a 600 square metre lot into 300 square metre lots. I built one house, which I rented out. I didn't build the second house because financially I didn't quite have the capacity to do that at that point in time um, and ended up selling both of those. Um, but it was it was a good experience in that uh, it's the first time I'd put my own money into a property project, if you like, and it was interesting how that changes your mindset slightly because it's all of a sudden your money and that bill you've got to pay, you might actually ask the consultant to do a little bit cheaper and you might push a little bit harder for certain things to happen quicker. Um, so that was an interesting insight for me to understand how I would treat my own money versus how I thought I was treating the business's money that I worked for. Yeah, that's fascinating. I know once you start putting your own money on the line, you start to think, hmm, <laughs> how can I actually make better improvements? You know, is there probably a little bit more margin it can make? You know, how can we actually ensure that it delivers on time? It's it's really a different mindset because at the end of the day, I guess the business has a bit of buffer. <laughs> so we kind of work that out the best we can to help them out too. Yes, it was a bit confronting because I always, I suppose I, I prided myself or at least at the time I thought I prided myself on the fact that I treat the business's money as my own. But it was a good and pretty early lesson that actually I could go a little bit harder from a business sense. Sounds a little bit um, wrong to be saying that, but that's the lesson I took out of it. It's, it's fascinating to hear that as well too. It's great and thanks so much for sharing that. I also wanted to understand as well, when you said that um, those property or that, that lots were selling for 600 uh, well, not 600, but 600 square meters and, and you saw those mums and dads doing that as well. Was that quite, is that still quite common to, to see that happen? Because, I mean, you know, why would people buy the 600 square meter block initially not to build on themselves but to subdivide it? The nuance of the planning controls in that example were that you had to build the houses to subdivide. So, because at Stockland at the time, they weren't building any houses, the minimum lot size restricted um restricted us from going down to that 300 square metres. 
and that still happens. So there's still dual occupancies that get developed in the greenfield projects that we're working on, whereby um, because clear state in my current world, we don't build. So someone could come along, a mum and dad could come along and buy the bigger lot, propose through the council process to build two dwellings and therefore subdivide that lot further. So it becomes about how, I suppose, any particular investor can manipulate the planning controls to their advantage. Yeah, yeah. So is there any reason why Clear State has not really decided to go down the building path as well, or construction path, but just selling blocks of land off? If you looked at our 10-year plan, it's certainly something we've got on there as an idea and something we'd like to be doing. Uh, at this point, we just want to be really good at what we, what we know um, and build up the business to a point where I suppose we've got the financial means and we've got the, um, the ability to go and try something different. So it's more about being really methodical in the way we implement our strategy um, and getting really good at what we do um, and to a certain size that allows us to go and branch off into other, other things. But I certainly, I have a personal opinion that um, pure land subdividers in 10 or 15 or 20 years will probably be pretty rare because the ability to sell a house and land is a much better customer experience than trying to do all of the pieces of the puzzle separately. So if you're a customer at the moment, you buy a piece of land off me and you sign a contract with me, you then go and find a builder, you sign a contract with them, you then go and find a financier and you sign a contract with them. If that was all more streamlined through one entity, that's a far better experience. And I think as a consequence of that, more people will be attracted to building a new home as opposed to buying an established house. Yeah, and that makes absolute sense because, I mean, that's with anything. It doesn't have to be in property but it could be just um, going maybe buy an electronic device. If you're going to buy something that comes with all its accessories, you buy it all at one go. You don't want to be going to different multiple vendors to, to you know buy something. It just takes too much time. It's the convenience. That's happening in Melbourne a little bit already. I think Melbourne's the Melbourne market's a bit more mature in that sense than Sydney is. Um, there's a few more, uh, I suppose, builder developers that I, as I'd call them. Um, so, yeah, I think that's ultimately where we'll end up. So, yeah, the building uh, journey for us is going to be a long and slow one but it's certainly on the radar. Anyone who is in the development space for a period of time will have one or two war stories to tell and Barlow is no different. He recalls the unfortunate events that occurred following the purchase of a 50-lot subdivision at Clear State. We got a little bit swept up in the market hysteria that was happening a few years ago. We bought at the top of the market. We, we were guilty of probably not reading the tea leaves on what was actually happening in the market um, and almost forecasting that growth was going to continue. It didn't. What felt like a week after we finalised that transaction, prices started to go down, demand started to fall and in a 50-lot subdivision, once you lose the ability to sell at your feasibility price, your returns start to come under pressure. Um, so basically, we bought at the top of the market. We were selling on the on the way down. Returns don't look as good as they were when we bought the project. There's a few unexpected things that came during the council approval process as well that didn't hurt. That sorry didn't help returns. Um, so we ended up. I mean, we made okay money out of it, but it certainly it certainly was nowhere near our expectation. And we've had to do a lot of we had to do a lot of things on that project unconventionally to try and recover as much of that loss as we could. And how long did that take that particular process to sell off all those lands to be able to, I guess, recoup your first initial investment but also to you know, get through this, this challenging phase that you went through? 
about two years longer than we originally anticipated. Um, so we, we were doing things like to, to try and buy time for market recovery. We were renegotiating terms with the vendor. Um, we were looking at whether we could get more yield out of the project. Um, we were looking at trying to, I suppose, be a little bit creative in how we delivered the subdivision works with a, a civil partner. So it was it was almost any idea that we thought could save the project we were trying to implement, uh, which was good because it taught us a lot about how we could be more efficient on some of our, I suppose, better performing projects. But that particular investment was, um, yeah, one I probably don't look back fondly on from a return perspective, but out of every war story, there's a lesson. We certainly learned some there. Definitely. And was was like the 50 lot subdivision something like the, the common things that you, you guys take on those type of projects or is that sort of was it a smaller development in comparison to the sizes that you usually take on? So we do anywhere from 20 to 200 lots is sort of our sweet spot, um, which will, will vary in terms of the ultimate size of the, the parcel we buy originally, depending on where you are and where you're developing and what the associated lot sizes are. But yeah, 50 is pretty typical for us. When we think back to his time at uni, Barlow remembers how it all just clicked for him in his property development class. This would further ignite his passion for property and give him clarity from a career standpoint. You could do many things in property as you know, leasing, sales, real estate or all of the above. And I did a property development, um, well, there was a property development um, subject in my university degree and the whole process or the whole learning experience everything just seemed to make sense to me it was the first time i'd learn about a feasibility and what what the what makes up a feasibility and how you determine value of a development site um, it was really intriguing to me so that was probably my first aha moment where i said okay well now i i want to do property and i want to do property development so that gave me a lot of clarity from a career standpoint um, from a, a investing in property perspective Probably, probably no specific example, but the ben- when you're doing your, your own personal investing, the benefits of relationships is probably a broad lesson that I've learned, whereby if you can use your network to your advantage, it can help the return that you'll ultimately get out of a project. And I suppose that's probably a, a mindset that I uh, try and take into any investment, whether it be... Um, personal or professional, and, and that's paying dividends for me. So, inspired by Steve Barlow's journey, we'll keep the conversation going in a future episode of Property Investory. We'll discuss the current projects that Barlow is pursuing, both professionally and personally. So we committed to a 50-lot subdivision, which was acquired from three separate owners, three owners that own contiguous parcels. We'll hear about how there is currently a lot of government incentive for customers to buy and build a house. There's stamp duty exemptions, there's grants that they can get access to. So that, I suppose, is an advantage. For, for buying a new product. What motivates him in his property development career and in his own portfolio? I analyze markets, I deal with people, I negotiate with councils. It's so diverse that every day, every day I come into the office or, or start work is going to be different to yesterday. And that's next time in a future episode of Property Investory.
Tell me, is your cash or equity currently earning 1% to 2% per annum sitting in the bank? What if I said to you that you can do better and get a rate of 15 to 25% per annum? To find out more, register your interest to become a money partner at propertyinvestory.com. Right now, there are great opportunities in the property market and I'm looking for money partners who want to invest and receive 15 to 25% per annum on their money for a short six-month period. Register interest by visiting propertyinvestory.com. Witness history at Roland Garros where old rivalries meet new talent on the clay battleground. Tennis Channel Plus is your place to watch. Stream every court from your phone or smart TV live in HD. Experience three weeks of unparalleled access as the world's top players in tennis face off to see if the veterans maintain their dominance or if a fresh face rises to challenge them. Daily live coverage of the French Open begins Monday, May 20th. Stream it now with Tennis Channel Plus to be there when it happens.